0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. So we're going to read from the book of Matthew. Okay, book of Matthew, chapter 5 verses 27 through 32, and it reads, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better." One of the parts of your body, your whole body, thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you. Everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you don't know the Suttons, you need to know the Suttons. They are an amazing family. Yeah, you can clap for them. You should clap for them. They're... I mean, I'm just saying between Catrice up here with worship and Nate, as one of our elders, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible the, uh, the people that God has brought to serve and love this church, and, uh, and I am personally blessed and honored to work alongside them. It's pretty awesome. Well, good morning and welcome to the Burbank campus of Story City Church. We say Burbank campus because we also have a Granada Hills campus, and even though we're all meeting together right now and online, uh, we are a church that has multiple locations, and we are a collection of churches as one family. My name is Jared. I get to serve as one of the pastors of those churches, and so I'm super excited to be with you this morning. Our mission as a family of churches is to lead communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and people. We do this partly by raising up and sending out church planters, by revitalizing dying churches, and loving and partnering with other expressions of God's kingdom in this city. We do this not so Story City will be bigger or have a better name, but because we truly want more opportunity for people to come to know and love and follow Jesus. and So that's really important to us. Um, another way that we foster health is by reading the scriptures in different languages. If you've been here for any length of time, you've seen all kinds of different languages, everything from Farsi and Arabic to Armenian to Cantonese to, uh, to German. We've had all kinds of different languages. It's just fun. Uh, we've got Dutch coming up soon, right? So you'll know that he's not angry. He's just reading the scriptures. It's super cool. <laughs> Um, There's all kinds of good stuff. We have people like Victor who we have to keep stopping him from serving because he speaks like 28 different languages. You're like, Victor, calm down. You can't be up here every single week. We get it. But it's a great reminder of not only what heaven will look like with all tongues and nations and tribes worshiping Jesus together, but it's a picture of greater Los Angeles. And all the different languages and cultures and stories that exist right here in Burbank, in the Valley, and beyond. And we're so excited that that, uh, God has brought many of those stories and cultures and languages here. But we want to be a reflection of God's kingdom. And that's an important part of who we are and what we do. And so thank you for being a part of that. Your story is welcome here at Story City Church. Speaking of healthy relationships with our neighbors, uh, in light of... All the things going on in our county with the statements by the CDC, by the state, beginning next week, wearing a mask here will be optional, whether you want to or not, okay? As we start getting to reopening, we're aware that many people have been vaccinated, and so we trust you to make your decision. The only thing that we ask is that you have grace for those who choose something different than you. If they choose to continue wearing their mask, just have grace for them. That's great. That's awesome, no problem. If they continue not to wear their mask, that's great. Have grace for them. We're all one family here together, and so we're going to love each other, even though we have lots of things that maybe we're not on the same page with. And so we're just going to continue to move forward in light of the fact that we know how to be gracious to each other as a family. Good? All right. Let's get to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus' Sermon is structured in a way that it builds on itself. It's been building. Uh, some people thought that the Sermon on the Mount was only the Beatitudes. And, uh, and while that does take up part of chapter 5, the beginning, those Beatitudes are great. Jesus' Sermon actually continues all the way through chapter 7 of Matthew. And so we can't understand Jesus' teaching about salt and light or divorce and anger without understanding we're called to be the people of the Beatitudes, people who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, peacemakers, etc. So today, we have adultery and divorce. At least I don't ever have to teach on the hard stuff here, right? <laughs> Whew, who set this one up? Um, all right, let me start off by saying um, sometimes um, those of us who have been Christians for a long time, right? There's some of us here who are still exploring Christianity. Some of us here have been Christians for a short time. Some of us have been Christians for, you know, uh, since the days of Moses, and that's okay. But what Jesus is doing here is not giving us a a step-by-step, if this happens, then cut out your eyeball. If this happens, then cut off your left hand. He's not giving us a, hey, this is what you do in this situation. What Jesus is trying to teach us is the heart behind it. I mean, we only have two eyes, right? And and if if Jesus is being literal, not many people in this room would be able to see anymore. I mean, yeah, I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So what Jesus is teaching here is he's taking the key teachings of the Pharisees and he's using them to show how far that teaching is from the truth of what God intended this to be. The Pharisees were great at dealing with appearances and how we presented ourselves outwardly to God and people. And Jesus puts them on blast for all of eternity for that. He says, that doesn't work. You guys can't do that. Everything on the outside looks awesome, but ain't nobody got time for appearances. Okay, This is not what God's kingdom is all about. At the same time, the language is severe because Jesus is making a point that this is important to God. This isn't something you can just say, okay, well, yeah, that's great. That's a nice teaching. It's, it's good, but this doesn't matter. And so Jesus uses a, a very severe attention-getting point. And over and over and over, the Bible points out that what matters to God is the condition and the intentions of our heart over our actions. We see this Old Testament and New Testament. And this portion of Scripture is no different. And Jesus starts all these portions with, "You've heard it said, but I say." So with that understanding, let's get to our first observation of the day. Our first observation, first observation of the day is this: This portion of Jesus' teaching is actually not about adultery, but about sin and our identity in Jesus. This portion of Jesus's teaching is not actually about adultery, but about sin. And our identity in Jesus. I would say that adultery is the symptom, not the root or the cause. And so before we can talk about adultery and divorce, then we must talk about sin and love and who we are called to be in Jesus. When the king of this world created this world, he put humanity over it as his image bearers, the imago Dei. When the king of all creation put us as the Imago Dei, our job was to be the perfect reflection of him, to show who he is, how he loves, the way he gives and sacrifices, the way that he leads. Our job was literally to be God-honoring culture makers, influencers that point to him. Now, humanity rejected that calling not because we didn't want to lead, but because we thought that our way was better than God's. Because ultimately, we want to point to ourselves. We have the same calling now as when we were created, and yet deep down, just like Adam and Eve, we don't actually trust that God knows what is best for us. We want to control our own lives and feel like we have somebody that's going to be looking out for us, that maybe God's too busy or too big to care about our circumstance. And so ultimately, we just don't trust that God is going to handle every little aspect, and so we end up taking control back for ourselves. The Pharisees had been teaching people that as long as their actions didn't go against God's will that the thoughts and intentions of their heart really had nothing to do with God. Hey, that's your private life. That's your compartmentalization. That's your internal stuff. Don't worry about that. As long as it doesn't spill out into your actions, you're good. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. And actually, we still hear that often today. We talked a couple weeks ago about Jesus' statements on murder. And Jesus points out that murder starts in the heart. And that's exactly where God is looking. God is looking at our heart. He's looking at our intentions. When we allow anger to build, it becomes resentment, which becomes bitterness, which becomes despise, which becomes hate, which becomes murder. And Jesus is saying, you can't be an angry, resentful, bitter, despising hater that's righteous before God just because you didn't actually murder them physically. It doesn't work that way. And this is exactly what Jesus is pointing out here with adultery. And too often we're proud of ourselves because we haven't committed adultery or murder or some other obvious outward sin. But the very essence of holiness, the very essence of holiness in the New Testament is holiness of the heart. Not our outward actions. Not only can we not commit adultery, but we can't covet in our hearts either. I can't be lusting after somebody else's wife and be like, well, I didn't cheat on her, so I'm all good. Everything's fine. It doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. Let me give you an example of this in my own personal life. I once Worked in a job that had multiple locations. Some of you know that I was a police officer in in San Diego Harbor. And and there was times where you would get uh, down on the boats in South Bay, San Diego. And the deal with that was on the fireboats all the way in the south, you were so far away from everybody else. It took like 45 minutes to get there by car. And so it was a really remote location. And that office uh, on the fireboats, you basically floated around the bay hoping there was no fire for the day. And uh, it was kind of the job. It was was a pretty easy 10-hour shift. Um, But that office, because it was so remote, had become the place that uh, many officers actually ended up being unfaithful to their spouses in that office together. It was just a very remote location. Anytime that you spend large amounts of time with the opposite sex, there's just, you know, 10 hours a day for many, many days becomes an intimacy in your conversations and everything else. And my boss was responsible for scheduling. And so for six months straight, straight, she scheduled us every single day together in that office. And every single day, she would say, just sleep with me. No one will know the difference, I promise no one will ever find out, no strings attached, over and over and over again, 10 hours a day, every single day, in that same spot. Now, of course, this came at a difficult time in my marriage right? That's, of course it would come at a difficult time in my, in my marriage. She became so overt about her comments and the things that she was saying that other people actually began asking if I was sleeping with her. Now, I can sit here and tell you that I'm awesome because I didn't sleep with her, but that doesn't mean that I'm innocent. It'll only be half the story. You see, I didn't cheat on my wife physically, but so often, not just in that situation, I've carried lust in my heart. Often I've looked at stuff that I'm not supposed to look at. I've looked at people in a way that I shouldn't have and entertained thoughts longer than I should have. And if holiness is about our hearts being right, then it's, it's not something I can say, oh, fantastic, I didn't actually choose to sleep within that point, and now everything is good. But Jesus is actually saying that that stuff that I'm carrying, the stuff that I'm doing inside my heart, makes me just as guilty. As we look at this definition, we realize that really there's no way to be holy on our own. We can't overcome sin through our own efforts. In realizing how very sinful we are, we must realize our need for a power greater than ourselves to deliver us. And so apart from Jesus, I am an adulterer. But this is exactly why we surrender to Jesus and rely on Him. Exactly why we surrender to Jesus and rely on him. When we realize how sinful we are, we can't help but become meek and poor in spirit to to mourn our brokenness and hunger and thirst after righteousness. We trust in the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into his ways and not our own. See, we have to love Jesus, not the things about him. God can't be our ATM God where we just want stuff from him, but we don't have any true relationship with him. If we don't love God the way we should, it's not because it's because we have not realized the depth and the breadth of our wickedness. We have not believed that we are sinners without hope of redemption and healing apart from Him. This is the gospel that God Himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the Person and work of Jesus. We have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved in Jesus. We find healing and restoration in Jesus. We are no longer who we used to be, but we are made new every day. We see that we have right standing with God in Jesus even if we have a lifetime of poor choices. But what does this have to do with divorce? You might say, Jared, you don't know my spouse. You don't understand. They don't meet my needs emotionally or physically. I want you to see something about relationships. So often we fight and argue because of unmet expectations, expectations that have been violated. It might be spoken or unspoken, but we have some expectation that wasn't met. Can I get an amen? All right. You guys are awake. That's good. If we're honest, though, and we truly look at our expectations, those expectations are actually about us, not them. What do I mean? We approach relationships expecting to get something from them and are hurt when we don't get what we want out of our Relationships, But if that is the crux of our relationship, we must admit that the only thing we're looking about is how the relationship benefits us. We use our spouse or significant other to make us feel loved or wanted or needed or important or valued. Let me read that again. We use our spouse or significant other to make us feel loved or wanted or needed or important or Valued. Some of us are dating for the same reason. We find our value and our worth in someone else's being with us and choosing us. And in doing so, we've put them in a role that Jesus says is his alone to fill. We essentially make that person an idol and we tie our emotional and our spiritual health to how they are meeting our demands for worship. Because ultimately, When we use that person to make us feel good, we become the most important thing in our world. This hurts, I know. (laughs) The reality is, is that so often we're using people we don't even realize we're using them. So often we think, well, I would never use my spouse, and yet when we look to them for that need, for that satisfaction, we're putting them in a place that only Jesus can answer. But, Jared, it's just not working out. Before we get to what Jesus says about divorce, it's important to understand what the Pharisees were teaching. Remember, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. So he's refuting something the Pharisees have been teaching. and In the days of Moses, when Moses wrote the law, the men generally held a pretty poor view of women, and they had come to believe they had a right to divorce their wives for almost any and every kind of frivolous and unworthy reason. And Jesus addresses this not only because he had a radically different view of women, but also because of the heart reasons behind their divorce culture, which is why I believe he addresses adultery and lust right before this divorce. The law, then, the law of Moses then was to bring some control to the chaos. It was to bring about a couple of major changes. First, it limited the divorce to certain causes. You can't just divorce for any reason. Before a man could divorce his wife, he had to establish some sort of extraordinary cause related to spiritual or moral or physical uncleanliness. Okay, this is where rights of women come in. Not only did he have to prove it, but he also had to establish it in the sight of two witnesses. This is radically different in those days than any other culture was doing. The second thing that it did was that it required him to give her a bill of divorce. Before the law, he could simply say he divorced her And she would have no proof of that. He could kick her out of the house. And then if somebody else were to ask, she could be charged with unfaithfulness without a legal reason for the divorce. And then she was liable to be stoned to death. And so the divorce certificate had to list the reason for the divorce, the reason and the witnesses. And that protected her. It gave her legal standing and witnesses she could call if necessary to prove her standing. And lastly, it allowed, it made that the husband could not remarry her again to try and get back any of his rights or what he wanted. All of this was a way to point back to what God had intended marriage to be, something very serious and important to him. So if you're taking notes today, this is our second and final observation for the day. God takes marriage seriously because it's not just a promise, it is a supernatural merging of two people into one. God takes marriage seriously because it's not just a promise, it's the supernatural, supernatural merging of two people into one. So the Pharisees had taken this law of Moses, and they had gone so far as to say uh, that Moses commanded divorce. If your wife was unsatisfactory in any way, then you had better divorce her. That's what they were actually teaching. But Jesus says that's never what the law was intended to do. It was never what God intended for marriage in the first place. Jesus says Moses introduced the law because they were so out of control. God was moving them back to a place where they could understand and see what God had intended for marriage. In the very first marriage recorded in Genesis between Adam and Eve, God pronounces that in marriage the two become one flesh. Now, I want to take time out for a second and speak to those of you who are not married yet. You're like, yeah, thanks. I'm, you know, I'm still sitting here. What, are you, what about me? You maybe wondering what this has to do with you. I want to give you a picture that might help you out just a little bit. Marriage is about more than just being with someone. It's all about the spiritual connection as well as a physical connection. In fact, I believe that in marriage, God has designed the the physical connection in order to actually enhance and promote and give a better understanding of the spiritual connection. This is why sex before marriage or moving in together is a problem because it goes outside of the way that God actually designed us it's not just so we can say, the church can say, hey, I've got rules and you better follow them and that's how I check and see if you're doing it. It's because God literally designed us as spiritual beings first and he says, hey, I know that you may not understand all of this, but I want to explain how this is designed to work so you can find full satisfaction in me. A survey of sexuality conducted jointly by researchers at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and the University of Chicago called The Most Authoritative Ever by U.S. News and World Report found That of all sexually active people, the most physically pleased and emotionally satisfied were actually married couples. The myth of our culture is that the single life is a life of great sex and the height of pleasure, but that's a lie. Some of us have been taught that God is against sex, and this couldn't be further from the truth. Far from being a killjoy, God rejoices in our sexual pleasure. God says sex is an adventure for a husband and wife committed to each other in love where we explore different ways of enjoying his gift. Instead of being prudes, we are called to be people who are uh, uh, pleasure seekers and pleasure givers. This is what God has actually called us to. To redeem sex from all the ways it's abused and used means we celebrate it as a gift given to us for our enjoyment to the glory of God. God is the one that invented pleasures. God is the one that invented sex. God is the one that invented us and designed us this way. And so he must have some idea of how this is to work. C.S. Lewis captures this idea poetically in his novel, The Screwtape Letters, wherein an uncle demon writes to his nephew, saying of God, the enemy, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea? Out on his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, as he writes in that blasted book of his. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has filled the world full of pleasures. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasure's. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce a one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. See, God isn't limiting us. He's not limiting us by reserving sex for marriage. He's freeing us to experience what he created in a more holistic way. Think about it this way. When you're dating, here's maybe one of the best ways I can describe it. When you're dating, it's almost like your relationship is a pint glass, okay? And, And it's like your experiences, you start pouring into that pint glass, and the more that you know and trust somebody, the more you experience them, those relationship experiences begin to fill up the pint glass. And at some point, it gets to the place where it's overflowing, and there's this feeling of like, I don't even know if this can get any better. Like, this is pretty incredible, and when you get engaged, it's almost like you take that pint glass and you dump it into a five-gallon bucket. And all of a sudden, it doesn't fill up that, that thing in the same way. You're like, oh my gosh, this got so much better than I thought. I didn't know it could be this much more. And it, and it becomes something more. And it doesn't lessen what you've done. It just means there's so much more room for it to fill up. And, and, and whatever short or long that engagement period is, your bucket begins to get filled filled up with these new experiences, these new relationship feelings, this new trust, this new respect. There's new fights, new arguments, right? There's all kinds of stuff that fills that bucket. And then marriage is like, you take that bucket and you dump it into the bottom of a swimming pool. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's two things that happen. A, you're like, wow, this is so much bigger than I thought. In fact, some of us, it freaks us out because you're like, I don't know what to do with this. There's too much room here. Like, oh my gosh, what do I, right? There's this sense of like, this is a whole new world. But if you fill up that swimming pool over years and years and years, and you take all of what that is intended to be, and you try and dump it into a pint glass, you miss, you miss the ideas and the benefits and the context of marriage by trying to force it into that smaller thing. And the problem is is that that people say, oh, you're limiting me. But you're actually, it's opposite. You're actually restricting what God wants to do and say. And this is exactly what he's created. There's so much more that comes emotionally and spiritually along with the physically. And so this matters because ultimately what we're trying to say is that God has designed us to be so much more holistic than just the physical. Marriage isn't just some promise or even a sacrament. It's a supernatural phenomenon that God connects us in spiritual ways we can't even understand. And this is why the Bible takes marriage so seriously and ultimately why it takes divorce so seriously. This brings us to verse 32. The only reason Jesus permits divorce is in the event of adultery. Because in adultery, that bond has been ripped apart and a connection has been made with somebody else. Now, Some of us in this room have been through that. Some of us might even be going through that now. Some have been victims, and others have been the offenders. And and honestly, this can sit really heavy in this moment. But it's here that we're drawn back to the gospel. It's here that we're drawn back to the gospel. We are loved and shown grace and forgiveness by God, even though we don't deserve it. We are loved and accepted while we're enemies of God, not when we have our act together. God doesn't say, get yourself clean, get yourself fixed up, get yourself right Stop sleeping with your girlfriend, stop doing d- drugs before you come to church, before you come to me. Like that, that's not what God says. He doesn't say you have to have your act together or be right before you come here. He says, come to me. I already did what I did for you on the cross. I died and rose again, not when you were perfect, but when you were my enemy, when you hated me. The good news of the gospel is that despite our unfaithfulness to God, he has remained faithful to us. That's incredible. That God's plan has always been a plan of restoration. As apprentices of Jesus, we have been renewed. We are being restored and someday we will be complete as he intends us to be. And because the gospel does bring healing and restoration, sometimes there is healing and restoration even now. There are people in this church who are living testaments to the power of the gospel in their lives. I know a number of people God has redeemed from the most broken, unhealthy, adulterous relationships to healthy, loving, godly marriages. You may be sitting here saying, well, it's too late for me, I'm already divorced. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The Bible says our forgiveness isn't dependent on our ability to make things right. God's love for us isn't dependent on our being good people. We are loved because he is good. We are forgiven because he loves us. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness and grace in him for all who are apprentices of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean in the scriptures. Paul tells us that as apprentices of Jesus, we are made brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see the new has come. He reminds us that it isn't our efforts or our good deeds, but God's incredible grace that made us new. In Ephesians chapter two, verses four to five, it says, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He says, not only are you new, but you are blameless before God. Ephesians chapter one, verse four, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Because of that, we don't stand condemned any longer. Romans chapter eight, verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But what about the mistakes I still make? God wants us to be obedient because his ways are simply better. He always does what is best for us in his kingdom, even if it doesn't make sense for us. But some of us get caught up in the guilt and shame from our mistakes. You know the difference between conviction, right, and guilt and shame? Conviction says, the Holy Spirit says, son or daughter, I have so much better for you, but I love you, I've forgiven you. Guilt and shame has been nailed to the cross. Come come, here, come with me. I want to show you a better way guilt and shame says I can't believe you did that what kind of person would do that you're a terrible person no one will love you God won't forgive you you need to show God how sorry you are those things are not of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit will definitely show us through scripture through other believers through prayer and a number of other ways when we aren't being obedient God isn't shy of letting us know when we're doing something wrong but he reminds us how much we're loved in that His call is always to come back to obedience. Some of us have a hard time with that. Some of us believe that we haven't been fully forgiven, that somehow our sin is more powerful than Jesus' shed blood. The truth is, for those who are apprentices of Jesus, there is now no what in him? Condemnation. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That is good news. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Communion. Communion is a 2,000-year-old tradition established by Jesus himself. In taking the bread and juice, we are entering into Jesus' death. The bread, Jesus said, represents his body broken for us. He was literally damaged so that we might be made whole, beaten so that we might be healed. The juice, Jesus said, represents his blood shed for us. He was emptied and poured out that we might be filled up with and covered in redemption and hope and forgiveness. Because of that, this really is only for those of you who are, are apprentices of Jesus at this time. Trust me, no one's gonna notice if you don't get up out of your seat. It's not like we're going, seat 43B, get them, get them. They didn't take communion, it's okay. Don't, don't worry about that, just stay in your seat. No one's gonna notice. Here, uh, we take communion by, by coming up. We really encourage you to take it as a family. Highly encourage you to take communion as a family or your community group together. That's really good. Um, But before we do that today, I want to ask something. I want to do something a little different, and that's all of us could use prayer. And I believe that this is a great opportunity and time for us to do this. The Bible says we're supposed to reflect on our hearts before communion. And so I'm going to ask the elders and their wives to go ahead and make their way up. We're going to have um, some here at this wall. Uh, Daryl and Tracy will be over here at this wall, and um, we will have some people outside. And so if you need prayer today, um, we would love for you to come and be prayed over by our our couples here. I will ask this. We do have a couple um, of uh, men that are by themselves and women by themselves. And so prayer can be a very intimate thing. And so we ask that if you are a man or woman, go to a couple, that's great. But if you are are going out to one of the ones that's by themselves, we would ask that the women go with the women and men go with men. Again, it's not a gender thing. It's about the intimacy of prayer. And so let's keep that the same. We want to be able to be real with God and each other in this moment. Good? All right, I'm going to pray for us and then feel free to come and take communion and head out to the prayer areas. Lord, you are incredibly worthy. You are holy and right and good. I thank you that you are here for us and with us, and that as we surrender to you, Lord, that you meet us right where we're at. I thank you that we don't don't have to have our ducks in a row. As we joked a couple weeks ago, some of us haven't seen our ducks in years. But Lord, we thank you that that we can come to you in in full confidence, that you know us, that you love us, that you're here with us. I thank you that there's redemption in your name. There's healing in your name. I thank you that those of us who are struggling, Lord, to, to even get to marriage, that you're with us, that you love us, that you know our hearts. And so we pray that you'd be the center of our relationships. We ask this by the power of your blood. In your name, Jesus, amen.